I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. This is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Joshua Cohen's book, The Netanyahu's, an account of a minor and ultimately negligible episode of the history of a very famous family. And Tim's back. Tim, Yay! hi, you guys. You're back, this is you guys. So exciting. Hi, Tim. Crew. Well, yeah, I, I started to like do go it, down do a road, but as soon as as soon as I started going down that road, I was like, no, pull back. Different, Don't start different place in trying my life. to sound street or something. That was back when you were hotboxing in your car in Portland. Yeah, I've moved past that. I'm not street anymore. I'm out of the street. Now you're I'm safely ensconced in the middle class. I, I mean, I'm still Jenny from the block. So just own <laughs> yeah. your roots. Tim. Yeah. Are you? Are you? Are you still Jenny from the block? Says the girl. Is Jenny from the block? What is that? That's a song. Never mind. You just lost all your street cred that we were trying to build up. I'm trying to get off the street. That's what I want to do. <laughs> That's right. I'm yeah, trying yeah. to get off the street. That's right. Tim's trying to get ensconced in the middle class. Right, who's saying Jenny from the block? Does, does, right does Jenny from the block go to the place that Heidi is sitting is at now, or at least she's in a parking <laughs> lot because she just went to that place? Or is that I'm a right not- outside the Happy Spoon Korean place? I feel well, like that is a really great. You're not neighborhood. outside. You're not outside the Korea, the Happy Spoon Korean place because you went to the Happy Spoon. You're outside it because you went somewhere else. And the question is, does Jenny from the Block go to that somewhere else? And you might be uh, the yeah. only one that knows the I answer went, to that. I'm going to own this. I went to a facial right before this recording. It was amazing. They put this organic stuff in my face. It was really great. And I will tell you this right now: Jennifer Lopez gets more facials than I do. Jenny from the Block. <laughs> Is doing okay, that. That's that's fair. Now definitive. Do they did they put the cream on your face that they that exploded in the bag in the Netanyahu? Right. Just drink nice. my nose. Yeah. Nice. It was maybe made by the same manufacturer. <laughs> I don't know. Just sixty years, sixty years apart. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a 2021 novel by Joshua Cohen. It won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And uh, we'll get into what inspired it and and all that here in a minute. But it occurs to me, this is, is this definitely the, well, it's the, it's the most lately published book, obviously, because it was published in 2021 and it's only 2023. But is that the smallest gap between publication and when we did a book on the show? It has to be, right? Oh, great question. Yes. I think yes, for sure. I've never um, done Gilead was Gilead was close, Gilead, wasn't it? Yeah, Gilead no. was well. Gilead maybe. was two thousand eight or ten or something like that. I th- well, maybe two thousand four or five. In... Home was like two thousand eight or nine. Um, <clears throat> so that's a ten year gap. This is definitely the shortest. I think this is the most contemporary novel we've ever done. This is edgy, guys. We're on like the vanguard of close reads history right <laughs> this now. <is> edgy. <laughs> Tim can get his street cred back now. Yes, finally. After I blew it on Jimmy from the block. He's he's getting his street cred back by talking about a twenty twenty two Pulitzer Prize not winning novel about a <laughs> Jewish historian. Jewish culture, yeah. Man, like super based on the hardcore. life of Harold Bloom. Um wait. What? Yeah. That's not true. Yeah, okay. So okay, I'll give you some backstory. So this is a book okay. about it's 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 about the net the family of the Netanyahu's it's not really about them. It's about a, a college professor who is about to host. We've only read the first four chapters, of course. He is about to host Ben Zion Netanyahu, who is Benjamin Netanyahu's father. So the, ir- the irony of it is that the week this book was published, and there's no way they could have known that, was the week 
that Netanyahu got ousted as prime prime minister of Israel in back in 2021. So um, that's an amazing co- Super, coincidence. Yeah, it sure is. Um, and C- Cohen wrote a book. He he's a fairly uh, a bit of a cult following, but kind of beloved novelist among certain circles. And Harold Bloom, in particular, was a huge champion of his books, and says he he has a book that uh, made it on Bloom's list of the 40 novels you have to read and reread uh, that was published Whoa. after he died. It was like the last thing he ever wrote. Um, and in like 2015 or 17 or something, he emailed Joshua Cohen and said, yo, cause he's from the street too. Yo, get up here to my house in Connecticut <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to talk about stuff. So Cohen went up there. He recorded a lot of the conversation. I believe it parts of that appeared in the New Yorker or the New York times or something like that as an interview. But during that conversation, he told Cohen about how back in the 60s, he hosted Ben Zion Netanyahu on a campus visit to, I guess, Harvard or Yale or wherever it was. Cornell. Cornell. And Bloom was teaching at at the time. So the Blum character in this book, Ruben Blum, is inspired loosely by Harold Bloom. And it is it inspired the story. Now it's a, it's a fictionalization, but the little, the little anecdote that Harold Bloom gave to Joshua Cohen inspired this book. And of course, Bloom as a, you know, as a scholar and, and, you know, it's a campus novel, right? Uh, and, and he said, it's a novel, but a lot of different things, but it's partly a campus novel and Bloom's kind of outsized role in 20th century lit definitely in, is in influences it. David, are we taking for granted that our listeners know who Harold Bloom is? I think I might have been there. I think I might have been doing that for the last three minutes. Would you like to uh, to to res- famous American critic, um, probably the best known before his death, best known critic in the English speaking world? I want to say he was at Yale most of his academic career. Does that sound right? I think he was. I think that's right. For at least the like when he got famous in like the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. Kind of went through, I mean, he was kind of part of, kind of in the background of a lot of kind of contemporary arguments about literary criticism. His most famous book that, according to my lights, is uh, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. I think that's the name of it. Yeah. Which just deserves to be read just based on that title. Such a great title. He wrote, he did an um, annotated version of The Republic too, didn't he? Like a really That's Alan Bloom, different Bloom. Oh, yeah, oh. but Alan yeah. Bloom, the closing of the American mind. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're but right. He's, Harold Bloom's written real many, many books. I mean, how do you get famous as a literary critic? You have to have something going for you. Um, he's <laughs> um, he's an inc- he's an incredible scholar. Not necessarily everything we might agree with, right? In what in what he says, but man. He's a formidable and and prodigious American scholar for sure. And I didn't know about the convergence of the two of them, uh, about Bloom and Netanyahu, until I was reading about this book. So it's just a really cool story. You could say that Harold Bloom is like responsible. He's he's a big part of why writers like uh, Pynchon and... um, like Robert Penn Warren and Elizabeth Bishop and Ann Carson, a lot of those kind of people became as 
respected as they did is because he was, you know, in this in this world of Ivy League ac- literary academia, and he was championing 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 hmm. them. Hmm. And when he got his teeth or his whatever into somebody, it, their work tended to, especially the last twenty years of his career, tended to gain a you know, sort of gravity just by that. Um, and so Cohen's rise has kind of corresponded with the end of Bloom's career. Um, and Cohen's an interesting guy. Like he, he has a book that is described as a Jewish Sopranos. Oh, it's like about the Jewish, it's like about mobsters almost. Um, and he's got, you know, he's got a wide variety. He's got a book about a Jewish apocalypse called, I think it's called Wints or Wits or something like that. So he writes about a, a wide variety of kinds of things. And here we have a book that's like part, contemplation of diaspora and history very philosophical novel it's a novel of manners almost like 20th century novel of manners it's a campus novel um and i texted you guys because well you may have forced me to 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 declare my you know to 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 be committed to my affection true my affection for this book yeah. Well, okay. that is true. That is yeah, true. You did force me to to force other people to read it. <laughs> we said you get to choose between trust and the Netanyahu's, and nobody's going to make that decision but you. And you picked this one. No one but you, David. Yeah. yeah well, no one but you. It was is your turn to pick. Yes. It's not. A, yes. It's not so how I picked. remember it, but the record was. There's a record out there we which uh-huh. we can. There is a recorded record. We have you on tape. Everything Heidi just said is true. Lucky for me, it's definitely not on tape. It's just, <laughs> yeah, right, it's just right. in the cloud everywhere. Um, I texted you all in part because I was kind of like um, desperate to find out what you're thinking of it. Uh, because I didn't, you know, when I, you know, I went on a limb with this book. It was my number two book of 2021. And the only book that was ahead of it was George Saunders book, which is just a collection of seven Russian stories, um, which by like people like Tolstoy. Um, and I know that this is not a book for everybody. So I've kind of been hesitant. I've been nervous, if you will, about what you guys are going to think. So I texted you and I asked if you think it's funny and Tim, I think, what did you say? You said you think it's like, it's pretty funny, but maybe not like ha-ha outlandishly funny. And then we talked about a few scenes back and forth. And Yeah, I, I wasn't like hugging my ribs in painful laughter as I trolloped, as I traipsed through this book. But there were moments <laughs> that I found really funny. Um, and the writing is superb. The writing is so good. It's so erudite and quick, and that's that's my favorite part of the book thus far. And, and I'm going to say before Heidi weighs in on what she thinks, I feel like we've not really, having only gone five chapters into this book, I still feel like I don't know what the story is. But I kind of want to make a prediction just because it's fun. Oh, it's yes. fun. Everybody loves when Tim, Tim predicts something in the first episode. So go do it. Yeah, this I'm, is classic. Cl- classic close book, reads. Classic bit. Ignorant Tim. <laughs> new book, Ignorant Tim. Either courageous enough to be ignorant or ignorant enough to be courageous. I can't figure out which, but, but we'll, we'll figure it out together. <laughs> Sorry, Heidi. Do you think this book is funny? Wait, <laughs> do you want me to answer that? Because... I thought you were going to make a prediction. 
No, I will. But later, I, I'm going to hear if you think the book is funny. I think the book's hilarious. I think like it's side splitting hilarious or like, <laughs> uh, I mean, it made me laugh out loud at that scene with when they're talking about the bedroom with his mother-in-law in his bedroom and his father-in-law in the bathroom. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I was laughing. I was laughing out loud, which it is hard to get someone to laugh out loud at a book. I feel like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I keep that's a very playing this individual entire. Thing. Yeah, agreed. And I keep playing this entire book in my head as a movie. Like I'm like seeing it mm. unfold and seeing him like quit back and forth. And mm-hmm. I I think it's funny, but I think one of the reasons why it's funny is because it is um, there's these wild swings, these pendulum swings between these like moments of like pathos and tragedy. And then this like dark comic, like, but in and a then very, there's like a random letter from somebody recommending your whole chapter. The that's letters in, yeah. were so funny. I thought the letters were great, but you have to have, this is a smart person, funny book. Like this is one of those books mm. that like it's written so smart and it's, it's winking at you the whole time. So yeah, yeah I, think, I do and, think it's funny, but I think it's also tragic. Yeah. Would you say that yeah. it's the funniest book that you've read since, Confe- since the Confederacy of Dunces? Heidi? Hello. Pass. Heidi? <laughs> Heidi? Pass. <laughs> you say pass. Yeah, because no. David was trying to say something. So no. I don't want to. Yeah, what was going yeah. on? I just want to be polite. Oh, you know, I, you know, Heidi, I would be very happy to concede the floor and let you He'll just. yield some time. Yeah, exactly. Yield some time. I think this book is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what I did was I went over to the Facebook group, the Close Reads Facebook group, and I posted a poll because I was curious. Naturally, I was just curious to see how people would, how they would feel about it. Um, do, do, is there a, is there a consensus? Because I do think that if, if it's just the three of us that think it's funny and everybody else is sort of like, what's wrong with these people? That would definitely help me understand the, um, that maybe what binds the three of us in our friendship is that we have weird senses of humor, um, which Word. might, might, might be true anyway. So, so I put it out as a poll. Do you find the Netanyahu's funny? Um, the first option was what is wrong with you? Definitely not. Now we had three votes, 3% of the people voted for that. Uh, somebody, Russell Henderson, I'm just going to mention him. He put on here initially, yes, later on, no. So we'll let that be something that's just kind of floating out in the, in the ethos, in the, in, in this, the, uh, the, the universe as people are reading. Uh, one option was I generally don't laugh at books, which was, uh, one person voted for that. Um, then, 35% of the people said, eh, here and there. And then, absolutely, I've been chuckling to myself throughout, got 58% of the vote. And I have to admit to being both, to being pleasantly surprised by that. Like, I'm glad that people are chuckling to themselves throughout, or at least saying, eh, here and there. Um, I was not sure that that would happen. In part, you know, you see, you called it a smart person book. And I think, I don't know if I would say it's a smart person book. Because I don't know what that means, <laughs> so I don't know if I would well, say. Well, I said it's smart person funny. Like if you you have to. Oh, I see you what you're saying. To, yeah. Yes, like it's, it's smartly funny. Yes, like which I'm not saying if you don't think it's funny or not smart. That's not at all what I'm saying. But like it is <laughs> that the book is is inviting you to see from a certain perspective, and and because it's so tragic at the same time, it's. You know, some people are going to be like, feel like a voyeur laughing at it. And some people are oh. more like me and end up are just like need to confess their sins. So I think it's funny. 
I, I think the voyeur thing is actually like on purpose. I think he's. I agree. I think he's doing that on purpose. But Tim wants to. With the voyeur thing. I just said, I, if you, there are some people who are going to feel bad about thinking it's funny, right? Like, and like, I. So, like you're looking at somebody else's foibles and, and that makes you feel uncomfortable. Tr- yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, I see. How funny like, is it that the bother's throwing pumpkin pie? Although I think that's the next week's reading. But yeah, like, yeah, it it's that, it's some of the, it's that black comic that is some, some people find it funny and some people don't. And I that's, don't all the time, but in small doses, I do. That's, so. I think that it works because it's so, it's so ideas based too mm-hmm. and, and relationship based. And, and it's also, cause that's a very Jewish thing too. Like you look yeah. at a lot of Jewish books and, and movies and things like that. Kind of like black comedy about people's foibles. Like look at the Coen brothers, right? That's a very Coen Brothers type of th- type of thing. This is exactly how I picture this this movie in my head as I'm watching it. I'm like watching it, and my imagination is like the Coen Brothers directing this film. Yeah. Um, Tim wants to he wants to predict though. I almost was going to say project. When maybe this prediction will be a bit of projection, a bit of a projection yeah. of my own internal psychosis. Yeah. So you said it. So. <laughs> It seems like there's two storylines going on here. One of them is Reuben Bloom, the academic, being asked by his, whatever, chairman of the academic division to um, kind of scope out Netanyahu, the scholar who may potentially join his college. So that's the opening chapter. And we get another chapter, a high praise recommendation letter in another chapter. And then the other chapters seem like they're kind of more about the family dynamics of Ruben's um, both nuclear family and his in-laws. But throughout, the, I guess the unifying theme is the question of... Um, is about Jewishness in the modern world. And I'm trying to figure out how these two storylines might interact in the future. So here is my very foolish prediction. And I'm going to put prediction in quotes. It's going to be really funny if he makes a prediction now that is like identical to what the one he did with Rebecca or something like that. It's just a, it's a murder mystery. Going to be great prediction. I can't wait. So, my, I'll just say what the prediction is and then I'll give my rationale for it. My prediction is that this family that is very, um, they have a complicated relationship to their Jewish identity is going to come in contact with Netanyahu and Netanyahu in some ways is going to be this sort of chemical substance that forces the family to kind of, um, align in some way with their Jewishness because isn't part of Netanyahu's program from what we see in the book thus far is that he is, is, is it safe to say he's a Zionist? Yeah. He's, I okay. mean, he's okay. a straight up Zionist. Full on Zionist. He, does, right? he, he doesn't believe in like integrating with, you know, like trying to become American an American Jewish Jew, state. You know? Yeah. And so 
The family, though, Rube's family, like his daughter, it's so hard to talk about this because we're kind of playing on these terrible Jewish tropes. But I'm just going to talk about what the book talked about. Mm -hmm. His daughter wanting to get nose reduction cream. Like clearly there's, I mean, it's both funny, but it's also just painfully awkward that she's Mm -hmm. trying in some way to minimize her Jewishness. And now we see on the horizon... Netanyahu, the scholar who's coming in with absolute belief in um, who the Jewish people are. They are the unique chosen people of God. And they, you know, this land is part of their destiny. And he not only believes in that as a political act, but he seems to believe it even on a theological level, according to his writings that, you know, Ruben relays to us. Yeah. So I just see the family coming in into a clash with Netanyahu and they're going to be forced to kind of reckon with their own background. Hmm. Okay. So, so my prediction is someone from Ruben's family is going to become a Zionist or is at least going to like step pretty close to becoming like a full on Zionist. Hmm. And then what is that going to do to the family? That's going to be exciting. And that's a and good prediction. It, the, 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 with the wrench in the, the library. With a wrench in the library. That is a good prediction. That's fun. And uh, we definitely will not hold you accountable one way or the other on that in the future episode. Because I've only read through five. I've only read through five, Heidi. I cannot be held accountable. I've only read one more chapter. Hold them accountable. Okay. Of course. So that's another one of the bits, right? I love that you're talking about, though, about how the daughter. She wants to like reduce who she is. She she doesn't she doesn't love who she who she is. She doesn't. She like wants to reject and and separate herself. Um, and how that contrasts with the sort of ideology of Netanyahu. And it's be, I think that we're even getting that that sort of that contrast or that that turmoil within the family unit as well because like his, his when his in-laws come in that very funny scene the chapter chapter four that Heidi's talking about where his in-laws come and they're debating they're talking about you know generational differences in sharing beds and why you know why they don't why one generation shares the bed and the next generation or the one generation doesn't share beds the the spouses sleep in different beds or even different rooms uh, and then but then no that's the modern thing to do right to share a bed um even there her family, his in-laws family have assimilated, right? And his parents won't come because yeah. they want to go to pray. And he doesn't, yeah. and what's, what, we're, what, what is revealed to us, I wouldn't call it subtly, but very cleverly through that bit of dialogue is that for Rube, his Jewishness is, it's intellectual. It's not like mm. part of his daily life. It's not practice. You know, we, it's something kind of like we saw in Asher Lev, right? Like that, that's, in Asher Lev's parents, where that's their their whole life is wrapped yeah. up. It's not it's not intellectual. It's 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 part of their essence. And for Rube, the scholar, Jewishness, like his Jewishness is is like an intellectual activity. It's like part of he's trying to like study it and and measure it. And it's not part of who he is as a as an individual. And so that's already that's coming into focus as a sort of central conflict beyond just the book giving us this historian who's writing to us about the notion of the diaspora, which I, I've met, you know, it could be the stuff that he's talking about history could be so boring. And he somehow mm. manages to make those pages 
I think through a bit of humor and some sleight of hand, pretty pretty entertaining actually. Uh, so I, I like what you're saying about the daughter, Heidi. Well, for you, you said that it's um, tragic. I guess was the word that you used. You said mm-hmm. it's funny but tragic. You call it like the comedy dark. Where do you see so far that tragedy and that darkness mm-hmm. becoming apparent? Is, right. So when I I don't know if black comedy has a or dark comedy has a um, like a technical term, but for me, when I read or watch something that has that dark comic element it's when the comedy invites the reader or the viewer to to laugh at someone's pain mm. um and 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 that is what this book is doing right and it's it's inviting us as the reader to participate in it to laugh and but also in so doing it reveals uh all of these conflicts and um um suffering that's represented in the jewish people but this is a very very american book like this is like what it's like to be jewish in america each of the characters seem to represent some kind of response from an uh from individuals in the story that represents kind of a larger response um in the culture right for example a that and Tim, you said you feel kind of bad because it seems to be um, evoking these like bad Jewish tropes, right? And I think that's definitely one way to look at it. And one, and and I think that as David said earlier, Cohen is playing with that. Um, and then, but also, like who who hasn't kind of absorbed through media. Uh, this idea of the worldly, successful, wealthy Jewish woman who's like fully invested in culture, all about fashion, has good taste. The Marvelous is, Mrs. Maisel, like one of the most popular exactly. TV shows in the world right now. And that show is playing, again, on that trope that's represented by Edith's mother, right? Mm-hmm. And And so she is speaking for that aspect of Jewishness in America. And each of the characters kind of do that in some way. I find it very fascinating that so far we know hardly anything about Edith at all. I think that's yeah. really interesting yeah, uh, and super purposeful because Cohen is really great at characterization. And so that tells us something, right? So I, without, without, I don't, I, I'm just noticing in the book how Cohen is, Inviting us to laugh at and, but not just to laugh at, to kind of go behind the character's eyes and to think about this aspect of Jewishness in America from kind of a bit of an ironic distance, but also fully inhabiting each character and how they're feeling like he, and, and, and how they're interacting with each other. And he even directly says, I think it's in the, the letter, the second letter, um, that one of the important ways of humanizing an immigrant culture is when that immigrant culture kind of turns on itself and forms factions. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and and then that's when you know it's fully embedded in the larger culture instead of having kind of an us versus them mentality. And so I'm seeing Cohen do that between by creating conflict within the characters here. Um, and then that kind of little microcosm of the family zooms out to give us a bigger picture of Jewishness uh, within the culture, and then with already Netanyahu, already Ben Zion Netanyahu as a disordering and disorienting force within it, which is exactly what happened in history. Mm. One of the things that's that I, smart. 
funny and sad. All right, go ahead, David. I like that you're just talking about Benzion as a disordering thing because this is a, this is a family who is trying to like establish themselves in a new place. And they're trying to like make a life for themselves. They're trying to find a home. They're trying to make a home. They're trying to figure out who they are and and all those sorts of things. And everywhere they go, they're either being reminded of where they come from, what they left, what they're missing out on. You know, in the big city, that's what <clears throat> that's what it, you know Edith's mother is always constantly talking about. And so every time it seems like they're they're finally settling in, they're trying. They're kind of like making something or like finding some order, some kind of disordering thing comes into the into the picture and reminds them of what they are lacking which i think is why your prediction tim is act i mean without saying too much i think is pretty good um that that they're gonna enter the fray and sort of like being disorder be disordering agents do you have any thoughts tim on this this dark comedy thing i know that like as someone who has studied shakespeare and also like greek drama and drama in general dark comedy and gallows humor and you know all those sorts of things are such a big part of of drama given that do you have any thoughts on what he's doing here i don't know that i can add anything beyond what heidi said that like kind of crucial to dark humor is writing something so funny that you laugh at somebody else's pain um yeah, I don't know that I've got anything more to add aside from aside from that. And in this book is yeah, it's laughing at it's laughing at other people's pain and I think it's also laughing at other people's anxieties. Like the book is riddled with anxiety, which another kind of Jewish trope that I think Ruben plays on from the beginning of the book is how, you know, kind of anxious he is about everything, how insecure he is at his place in the college is a Corbindale. I can, they were making so many jokes about Corbin the name Dale, of the Corbin college Dale, yeah. that I, yeah, right. Cor- that Corbin I actually, Berg. I can, <laughs> Corbin Berg. Um, yeah, he doesn't feel confident about his place there. He doesn't seem to feel confident in his place at home and it's easy to laugh at him. And we're, I think we're supposed to be laughing at him. And that's right. one of the things I think that makes the book really tick thus far for me. And I think also what Shakespeare does with those tropes, I think does, um, I, I, I really like David, that comparison, because I think that Cohen is doing something akin to Shakespeare in that he's taking tropes that we recognize, uh, and inviting us both to laugh at them and find them funny, but also endearing and to care about them and then inviting us to um, ask ourselves a question of how complicit we are in the suffering that we're laughing at. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I think some of the beating heart of the book, it doesn't feel ideological. Like it's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like an activist book, but it does feel like it's pointing at, something that is funny and yet has that tragic undercurrent and invites us to say, wow, have, how have I contributed? Am I complicit in, in what these people are going in this anxiety, right? That you, that you just said, this anxiety, Mm -hmm. this suffering, this kind of, um, this, 
this dream of what America could be and yet the reality of what it is for these people and the different responses that you have within that community um, to either assimilate or resist or uh, or lose themselves or or find meaning in ideology ideology right so yeah that 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 I think Cohen is already building towards in a really um in, in just in a really wonderful way yeah on the one hand you have the we haven't met him really yet we've heard about him through the letters we have the ideologue and then on the other hand we have the person who is like feeling dehumanized by the stereotypes themselves like in mm-hmm. then say in, in the case of Judith the daughter mm-hmm. she's feeling like less than she wants to change her like face because she feels like she's too much of a stereotype or something like that but I think as to your point Heidi at the beginning he gives us this professor in this first chapter because the professor is like smart he's not a purely farcical character right like he is well spoken he actually like strategically is kind of smart about it he isn't outright awful in talking to uh, Ruben he kind of knows that what he's doing is a little bit wrong, right? Like he's uncomfortable with making Ruben do it. And so like the conversation itself is full of, he's using all these stereotypes and he's a, it's an uncomfortable conversation. But you also can kind of see yourself in it, right? Like he's not, it doesn't completely demean him to the point where you can't, you can like, you can't sort of see yourself maybe in the wrong situation, making the same decision or I'm, there's, I love that in that conversation, sometimes you kind of agree with what he's saying. You're like, oh, I can kind of see that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not supposed to, I, I, I can't agree with this. I can't agree with what he's saying here. And I think the book does that a lot. It toys, it puts you right on the edge of agreeing with something. And then you realize that the thing you're agreeing with is like actually a stereotype that's kind of demeaning. And he pushes you right to the edge and then points it out to you. And then you're like, oh, and then you, your only right. option is to put your tail Which between your legs. Another thing that's very Shakespearean, right? That point counterpoint, right? Yeah. Like here's, here's, here's a, presentation of a highly this Shakespeare does this in the histories all the time a highly political uh idea or action right and then he gives us characters that either oppose or promote that action and he doesn't tell us what to think about it and and that so taking tropes and humanizing them very Shakespearean this point counterpoint uh idea too of the author himself is not telling us what to think in this book. He is just telling this really quirky, um, smart, um, and, and very troubling tale. You know what I was thinking about dark comedy. And one thing that it also occurred to me is that dark comedy often talks is, is a way, a means of talking about things that are taboo in other circumstances. And so it's allowing him to contemplate things that he wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Tim, do you want to add anything to this or do you want to make well, any I was, other predictions? I was wondering, um, it seems like Ruben is our main character and it seems like he's kind of the straight man for hmm. the dark comedy in a way. Does he strike you guys that way? Like, I, 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 yeah, I think that's I don't right. feel like so I far. know that much about him. Yeah. Aside from he's, he's kind of the observer. Reacting, not really promoting yeah. action. He's just reacting to what's going on yeah. around. Right. And trying to pour oil on troubled waters. But at the same time, he's incredibly clever and like thoughtful. And, his, and that comes across in his narration, his, like in his narrative voice, if nothing else. He's making all these asides <laughs> in the narrative all the time that are yeah. hilarious. 
Yeah. But most of what we get from him is from his interior. Yeah. And we, he shows up the most in the f- kind of family squabble. And he's, yeah, like, yeah, he's trying to settle things down, you know, show another point of view, whatever. Um, but what, I, I think what's really sad right now is that nobody seems to appreciate the guy at all, mm. at all. Nobody in his family. Um it seems like his, I'm, I'm sorry, the Dean, is that what we're referring to him as? Yeah. Dr. Probably. Dean, yeah. Maybe he appreciates him as a history teacher and as a way of kind of wooing Netanyahu, but I don't know that he really knows Ruben very well. So I, Ruben to me feels like this kind of, yeah, he's a straight man and he's a little bit of an outcast even among his own people in a way. So, I mean, crazy idea. You guys maybe know the answer. David knows the answer. What if he is, becomes really curious about Zionism, you know, here's this American historian who's Jewish. What if he's the one who kind of is like, Oh, this kind of like impoverished life that I'm living or this kind of outcast life that I'm living in my own family you know, maybe Zionism is the answer. That seems like a far stretch because he seems so secular. He just seems to have no interest in the religious aspects of Zionism. And Zionism is not just a political movement. Maybe I shouldn't say that. There were, I think there were some who very secularized Jews just said, yeah, Zionism is just like practically speaking the best way to protect our people. Mm. We have a history of abuses. So yeah, it's a politically expedient move with no necessary um, like religious component to it. But I think they would not be the majority. Mm. Anyway. Okay. So we only have a little bit of time left in this episode and I'm contemplating which direction we want to go. Cause we could talk a little, we could try to get to like what makes it humorous. There's some, the next few chapters have some like, just dark, just hilarious, darkly hilarious moments. Some of the funniest stuff I've read in forever. Sean and I were texting about it because he he loves this book too and thinks it's hilarious. And so we were texting about a few moments that you haven't gotten to yet. <clears throat> um, so I don't want to get too deep unless Tim wants to make more uh, specific predictions. I don't want to get too deep into what's coming. But where do you want to go in terms of what we're focusing on what we've read currently we could look at some of the passages that we think make it funny we could talk about um the narrative voice and we could just talk tim you mentioned the pros i mean what do you think would be the most helpful for people here a little inside baseball for the listeners over the next day 10 15 minutes i nominate the pros just because we're all we're all fans of how different authors use the language and assemble words into sentences and sentences in a paragraph. All three of us are really enamored of that, that skill. Um, And not too long ago, we read a book that was deeply, you know, into the Jewish world in the United States. My name is Asher Lev. Mm -hmm. And we loved the prose of that book. And that prose could not be more different than the prose of this book, right? 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 Like my name is Asher Lev is an almost kind of a little bit Hemingway-esque, very, very sparse. Not um, funny. 
zero not funny, funny. Like, oh very yeah it's mournful. such a serious and, book yes. yeah yeah and yet a little lyrical and, this, and yeah this book by contrast i think it is a very um erudite book i've got like notations on words i was like i don't know what that word is um yeah part of the point and and it's and it's the prose is wonderful i i just that's one of the things that i just admire that i it's one of the things that i love about kind of the job that we do on close reads is that we have these incredible diverse um types of authors and we can kind of celebrate how wonderful the prose is despite the extreme variations among these different writers voices. Mm. Heidi, what for you, like what about the prose is most compelling? Um, I think for me, it's, I mean, first it's a reflection of its author's mind. Like it, it, I, I really like what you just, what you said a few minutes ago, Tim, um, that so much of what we know about our narrator is coming from his interiority. And part of that is just how he thinks in the style of this prose. Like he's clearly a scholar um, and his prose reflects that. And then it's, I really love, I find it very, very comic and funny and smart when authors will hide um, like big thoughts in really like snappy phrases. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to find an example because I know David's about to say, can you find an example of that? And I promise I will, but because I'm talking, I can't be reading. And um, <laughs> that is the- Can I borrow some time yeah, right. for you, Heidi? Yes, please. So this is not quick snappy phrases, which there are plenty of in this book. This is part of Ruben's kind of- um account of the different worlds that he's living in during his education. So from page 30, he's talking about his childhood education. So this is second full paragraph on page 30. This is so my childhood days were so divided between the secular and the religious. And sometimes the religious arguments against the secular were so systematic and precise that I had the crazy suspicion that the rabbis had somehow been in class with me that they'd somehow stowed away in my school satchel and hung there in the classroom hooked throughout the day, absorbing Mrs. Ionello, absorbing what Mrs. Ionello said about the Bill of Rights or what Mrs. Murphy said about phylogeny, heredity, and the fossil record, just so they knew exactly what to contradict and rail against as the sky sheened gabardine dark toward twilight. One That's sentence, a lovely, by the way. And one sentence, one so like another just a little juxtaposition there between um Chaim Potok, my name is Asher Lev, lots of kind of like short pithy sentences with simple wordings. That was one sentence, one paragraph. It was great. It was great. I love the ending. And the rest of that, the next the rest of that page and then on to page 31 is essentially an introduction to different approaches to teaching history. And like mm. how, like what those different approaches to teaching history will do to you. But it's wrapped up in, even there, there's a lot of 
humor in this section. He, you know, he can say the past was merely the process by which the present was attained and the present merely the most current stage of the American superlative to be overtaken by tomorrow's liberation and capital's spread until the ultimate transfiguration of world history into democracy, into world democracy. The meliorist account knew no bounds. Like the country itself, it could only grow. It could never end. It was often expansive, exhilarating. By contrast, my Hebrew school was closed. So he goes on here. And yeah. then and then every now and then he'll drop a line in there that's really funny. And then or he'll he'll, you know, just drop in some new idea. Um, he'll refer to Rome and all that kind of stuff. But then in bracketing these contemplations is always something, some kind of like bit of sarcasm, even. You know, he'll mm-hmm. he'll be sarcastic or he'll be he'll be ironic. Um, you know, he'll 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 be making fun of himself. Um, and and I so he he never he never lets the ideas become everything then mm. yet the ideas are everything if that mm. if that makes sense i totally agree one an example of that what you said about like the big um kind of more teaching like i feel very taught by this book like i feel like i'm like mm. he's telling me he's teaching me things um that but one example of that is in chapter two, that whole description of the Church of the Assumption, which was yeah. one of the yeah. most brilliant things I've ever read in my life. That was so, so good. It was funny. It was super smart and incredible, like symbolic and, and a uh, like a credible use of symbolism and a commentary on religion and culture. It was so good. But in do the you middle have a paragraph? of paragraph. Yeah, well, I do. You wanted to read? Sure, but I want to read. I want to read an example mm. of... Um, what David just said, just like a simple little sarcastic comment, like buried in the middle of. So I'll, I'll read a little bit of this chapter. This is on page 27, the beginning of chapter two. In the Bronx, not far from the manicured jungle, jungles of Pelham Park, there's a mid-block boxy edifice of scruffy whitewashed brick from whose portico jets a marquee of burned out bulbs and jagged lettering that sometimes proclaims, thank you, Lord God. And sometimes offers a cryptic reference like Acts 1-7 or Ecclesiastes 1-9, but always states its name to reassure the skeptical, the Church of the Assumption. (laughs) Though I'd already left the borough before this marquee appeared, at some point over the years of my visits back, the novelty of it got lodged in my mind. I used to park my car in front of it, thinking who would steal a car from outside of a church? And the church's strange appellation gradually became a kind of private joke or personal pun for whenever anyone presumed upon my Jewishness or presumed to prevail upon me by appealing to my Jewishness. And then I'm going to skip a couple sentences. And then um, then he's going to talk about Dr. Dr. Morse here. Dr. Morse was a member of that church in good standing. <laughs> <laughs> so brilliant because yeah. everything you need to know about Dr. Morse is in that comment. And yet it's just funny and literally true. Right. Yeah. And it's just so good. Like there's all kinds of little moments like that, that to your point, Tim, the long sentences, the erudite com- uh, contemplations, like the, the teaching us, uh, if we're not aware of Jewish culture, we have to be taught by it, right? And so mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. always trying to figure out, Cohen and our narrator are always trying to figure out ways to orient us to where they're at in history and psychology. And then he'll throw in those like little like one-twos. And I just yeah. love it. Well, even even the one-twos themselves in a way are are like 
teaching or as, as right. you put it. So in chapter two, when we're getting introduced to Morse, he, he does a lot of like characterization in that, in leading up to that conversation. And he tells us someone in Dr. Morse's childhood must have told him that the polite thing to do to get by in the world, in his world, was to memorize one fact and one fact only about each of your Oops. colleagues' family members so that when you met that colleague or met their family members, you could, by mentioning this fact, appear solicitous and engaged. <laughs> so he kind of like, it's kind of like a, a Woodhouseian, like Jane Austen almost, like that's something like Jane right. Austen would describe Mr. Collins as or something, right? But then... A couple minutes later, if you care about the humanities, you're almost cheering when he's railing against the sciences because Dr. Moore says, the sciences aren't just expensive, they're greedy. They run their departments as if another war is on. You'd think they weren't just electrocuting pigs in there, but cooking up a bomb. Their time and effort <laughs> would be better spent setting up a mint and developing novel methods of counterfeiting currency because money's what's required and the purse is empty and the pocket's got a hole. And he's kind of railing <laughs> so and it's good. like really funny. And then... um that whole Morse is this talking to this whole chapter. And then he says, um, he makes a joke that Rube is kind of like, what? And he, and then it says, I coughed a laugh and he went on graver. I love that little, just like the little, he's no longer graver. being humor. He's being, he's no longer being funny when he says this, but this is really funny. You have my word, Rube, you won't be trimmed or snipped again. It's history. We're being pillaged. And then Rube says, why us? Because history is the exception. It always is. History is rich. Our treasury is the envy of mathematics. It makes even geology and physics just jealous. And so you get a lot, you get like more saying all these things that I'm kind of like, yeah, man, yeah, take it. And then you realize like he just drops a little line. It's like, yeah, but Morse is kind of a moron too. <laughs> and so he <laughs> has this, like it's both, right? And the same guy. Right. You've been set up to think he's a moron. And then you're like, wait, this guy's kind of smart. And then you realize, nah, he's kind of a moron. But all of that is through Rube's lens. And mm -hmm. Rube himself is, his sense of humor is so caustic and so intelligent that it keeps you on your toes as a reader. And sometimes the characters that he's making fun of are saying things that you can't help but, like I said, kind of be cheering for. And then you never really know where to stand, which I think is a great dramatic, it creates exactly. dramatic tension in a book that doesn't have a lot of dramatic tension yet. Like we that don't, is a great point. Like we don't, like the not knowing where to stand is like, that's what, that's what the first part of this book has been for me. Yeah. Well, you said you didn't know what the story was. Right. And I think the, the drama of the book works, even though we don't know where the story is <sighs> going yet, because in a mystery novel, you kind of know right away, right? Like the, what's the crime we're trying to solve? Who, right. who is our, right. who's our cast of characters? Now we've been given most of our cast of characters, but because of, because the narrator himself is constantly leaving on your, leaving you on your toes, you don't know which way to lean, right? You don't know which mm -hmm. way, the one twos, you don't know if he's going to go mm -hmm. right or left. And so you're kind of like dancing around all the time, trying to figure out who you're supposed to think is a good, is good, is a good guy. I'll be using that term. Loosely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who's got the right ideas? Who doesn't have the right ideas? Because as a, it's a book about ideas, which means it's a book about whose ideas are good and whose ideas are bad. Whose ideas are harmful and, and whose ideas us. are healing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, yeah. I agree. I think that the problem, if we had a problem of the book or conflict of the book, it is the, the difficulty of being Jewish in America at this time. Like that's, and that's why we're given all of these different characters that represent ways that respond to that, to the injustice and, um, uh, and also to the, uh, and one thing I thought was just so psychologically subtle and compelling to me was how 
uh, Rubin frankly acknowledges that things aren't so bad for American Jews as they have been in history for other Jews. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Right. And yet his life is very hard. And yet he's encountering, uh, being stereotyped and profiled and, um, and overlooked and judged all the time. And yet it's, and yet part of Jewish identity is like this long troubling history of overt, like violent oppression. And they don't live like that anymore. Right. And so that is even a problem. Because how do you identify yourself as part of this oppressed group if your oppression feels so minor to you compared to mm-hmm, how you've mm-hmm. been identified in mm-hmm. your culture? And and that, so I just thought that was so subtle and and well played on Cohen's part. I loved that. Um, and and that, but that's the problem of the novel. And and the disruptive force is in still in the future. It's been Zion Netanyahu as a Zionist. And so the question we're all asking, whether consciously or un, or unconsciously, is, is this disruptive force going to provide a solution or become more of a problem? And again, mm. that is reflective in the larger culture. That's exactly what people were asking on the world stage when the Netanyahus came on the scene. Mm. On the one hand, the Jewish identity led to great persecution. Identity, all kinds of identities lead to great troubling, evil persecutions. On the other hand, so on the other hand, they're not experiencing that. But to have no identity is also harmful to the soul. Mm, right. And I think that's one of the things exactly. this book is contemplating. He is not enduring the persecution that his ancestors endured. Um, there's that funny line where he like he doesn't like to think about the what is it the sex habits of his ancestors and in a way like thinking about your ancestors is one of the things this book is about because he's talking about how they went through things that he doesn't have to go through but he's also living in a world where he and his daughter and his people have no defined identity at all um and so they're trying to trying to figure it out and i think that's where a lot of the conflict of the book is they're not being heard uh he asks a question at one point of morse he says, uh, like he says, I'm, this is one of your own. That's why I think you should do this. And then he says, one of my own. And then Moore says, I'm glad you understand my reasoning. So he asks a question and is told, I'm glad you agree. Um, and I think that's a little microcosm of the, some of the drama in this book. Mm. Okay. We got to wrap this up. Heidi, final thoughts. I, I just, it's been such a long time since I read a funny book. And so I'm just really enjoying it. And I can't wait to find out because I, unlike Tim, I don't really have a prediction. Although that rang true with what you said. I was like, oh yeah, that seems like it might happen. So, um, and I'm really enjoying learning. I like to be taught. So I like that aspect of this book. I'm actually learning a lot by reading it about, about this time period. And it's kind of led me on a few rabbit trails of, you know, outside research. And that's super cool. I like that. This is a big challenge to my brain and, and it's just fun to laugh at a book instead of cry with one for a bit. Maybe I well, will cry later. So. I know you I know you just left. You just got a facial and now it's time for your pedicure so you can go ahead and go. Okay, thanks. It's not a pedicure. <laughs> it's taking Lucy to piano. Because <laughs> as I was talking to somebody this weekend, I was traveling at a conference, speaking at a conference, and one of the other speakers was like, what are you going to do when you get home? And, and I'm like, I'm going to cook dinner and do some laundry. And he's like, oh, yeah, my, I wonder what my wife is going to cook me. And I'm like, I know, but I'm the wife, right? <laughs> so, like, that's... 
Was this a conversation with Matt Bianco? Because yeah. I know he was there yes, too. Yes, it totally was. But I wasn't <laughs> going to sell him out. And that's nothing wrong with that. Um, but anyway, I had to go take Lucy to piano. So <laughs> that Tim, mom life. <laughs> yeah, Tim, any final thoughts from you? Right, see you guys. See ya. Hi, Heidi. Going to get a facial now? I'm going to get a facial. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Well, Tim, it was uh, great to have you back. We'll see what happens with your prediction. Anything, nothing else you want to add? Nothing else I want to add. All right. Um, oh, can I do a little plug? Yeah, for the I was plays just going to say, thing? what's going on with the Plays the Thing? We just finished, Emily Maeta and I, one of the most underrated of Shakespeare's plays, really? The Winter's Tale. Oh, yeah. It's a yeah. fantastic, beautiful play. We just finished that. And we also just recorded a new little, a, a second um, family Q&A episode cool. with the Alvarado family. So nice. we're, we're, we kind of stumbled upon this um, fun little thing where we get families together and from the kids to the adults, we just, I ask them like, what questions do you have about Shakespeare? And oh, they tend cool. to be classical families. And so they have really, they tend to know Shakespeare fairly well. Yeah. Yeah. So we recorded that yesterday nice. and that should be up soon. Nice. Yeah, The Winter's Tale is the only play with actual stage directions, right? Is that the one with like exit stage pursued exit by pursued bear? pursued by the bear yeah. <laughs> or pursued by a bear. I think other ones have stage directions. That's just, he's very, very sparse yeah. with his yeah, stage yeah. directions. And that's the most famous of his stage directions. One of the few times he doesn't just say exit or enter. And, that's right. And we speculate on the show, I think on episode three is where Exit Pursued by a Bear occurs, that I make the case that it might have been an actual real bear. Oh, really? If you want to hear the sh- if you want to um, hear the-, the reasons why. Okay, yeah. It's in, it's in the show. So go, go subscribe to The Plays the Thing if you haven't already. The Plays the Thing, yep. If you have, go fire up that episode. We'll just fire up the whole series. Why wouldn't you just listen to all five of them? Fire up the whole series. Go for it. All right, Tim. Thanks so much. Um, it's really fun to have you back. And uh, Yeah, it's great to be back. Have a good time over the next few weeks. we got Pygmalion coming up next, which means we're going to dip into some drama, which is, you know, drama is your thing, Tim. It is. So. It is. I'm always being dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. And thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.